Hello, I'm Naina Sabarwal Batra. Welcome to Money Meets Mission, a podcast brought to you by AVPN, the largest social investing community in Asia. I'm excited to host leaders from across the business, philanthropy and impact investing worlds to share stories of how they are putting their resources to work, tackling some of the largest and most complex social and environmental issues facing Asia today. It's important to have the problem be visible and tackleable by everyone. I think doers need to take funders on donors on a learning journey. In our world, doers like sailors in the ocean have to be realistic and clever. We all have instincts and ideology and inertia. In this episode, some of the most successful change makers are here today to share their lessons and advice on how to be a catalyst for systemic change. Moderated by Tim Hanstead, the CEO of Chandler Foundation, this episode will hear from Iqbal Dhaliwal, the Global Executive Director of Jaypal, Neera Nandi, partner and co-founder of Dasra, James Chen, chairman of the Chen Yat-sen Family Foundation, and Rukmini Banerjee, CEO of Pratham Education Foundation. Our goal is to have a, an honest, unfiltered conversation about funding systems change in Asia. And I think we're going to learn from each other. I think we're going to perhaps come away with some new insights from our terrific panel. And I'm going to start with Nira. Nira, your work at, at DOSRA is, is unique and, and impressive, um, catalyzing India's strategic philanthropy movement. And I know you do that, as I understand it, around the three C's, uh, creating knowledge, providing capacity, and by building collaboration. With your work with numerous donors in, in India, I'm sure you find that not all of them have an appetite for funding systems change. Could you tell us like, what, what are some of the common causes that funders maybe aren't interested in, in funding systems change? Great question. I, I think what's exciting is that there seems to be more and more momentum uh, around systems change. Maybe not a whole lot of understanding around it, but at least there's more enthusiasm to want to participate, I think, both on the donor and the doer. Um, I might need to just caveat that, as you explained what Dasra does, we kind of sit in the middle. So we find ourselves being uh, a bridge uh, between where the funding is and where sort of the impacts ultimately uh, landing. I think one of our biggest challenges to pursue systems change, and I think what I'll say is probably a quite obvious, is complexity. And Tim, I was just reading Chandler's uh, report. There's something said embracing complexity. And uh, I think that's one of our challenges, is that because of the complexity to have systems change deliver on impact, we often, as both doers and donors, shy away from that complexity. So I think it's because you need a number of different pieces that are coming in to support the system. And then as the system sort of chugs along, it starts to hopefully spit out impact I think sometimes it looks like it's a big black box. And so when I'm putting into the box or taking out from the box, I think the complexity inside there needs to be de deconstructed, therefore simplified. So it's not complicated, it's complex, right? So the more we push to simplify, I feel that that will engage donors. I actually think doers get it. 
So I think that part of our second challenge, so complexity, second one is attribution. So donors want to take credit for things, or maybe they have to report to some level of accountability, but it's very difficult for that linear kind of association. So direct attribution becomes difficult or, frankly, very expensive, right, to be, uh, to be doing. And then you have to let go a bit of that control. And I'm sure Iqbal will talk about this a bit. And so I have complexity, attribution, and the last thing really being measurability, which is a little bit around the attribution piece, is that you want to be able to measure quickly to be able to justify all the work that you're doing on the doer side or the money that you're giving. And there's a time lag in that. And some of the indicators are not always proximate to how you might ultimately uh, design. And so there's a lot of unintended consequences of systems change that I think it's still in its uh, nascency. So although as a field, uh, I believe it's quite advanced and sophisticated and a lot of people study it, I think its application is really the journey we're on. Thanks, Anira. That's uh, it was a great a great response. And you mentioned measurability. I want to turn to Iqbal. Um, Iqbal Jaypal is, is does such great work. But maybe if you could start just by telling us a little bit about that work, and then address maybe the measurability uh, point that that Nira raised. And and how do you think about measurability as at least a, a potential barrier to thinking about systems change? I think. Uh, you know, one of the main things and the foundations on which JPAL was founded was this belief that, you know, we all have instincts and ideology and inertia and based on that, a lot of decision making, whether it is at the level of the governments, whether it is at the level of the NGOs as doers or it is at the level of foundations and other organizations as donors, uh, is, is driven by our instincts, ideology and inertia. And that, after decades and decades, hasn't led to the sort of measurable impact on poverty and development that we would like to see. And so, what you know, our, our basic premise is to base decision making on evidence and data. And uh, and the way we like to do that is to go into the field, work with implementation partners and doers like Rukmini Banerjee and Pratham, one of the first organizations that Jaypal worked with, work with them to first and foremost measure what the problem is. I think oftentimes we jump into trying to measure what the impact of our innovations are, but sometimes it's very important to measure, are we actually understanding the context well? Are we understanding the extent of the problem? And then are, that also helps you understand what the drivers of this problem are. Once you have a handle on that, you can either map it to what you know is existing evidence, which is something like we love to do rather than jumping into a new innovation, or work to innovate in tandem with the partner. So again, sticking to the example of Pratham, you know, we, you know, Pratham has been at the forefront of trying to measure the impact, measure the extent of the problem through Asad and other surveys. Uh, Jay Paul was able to come work with them to evaluate some of the uh, innovative design things that they were thinking about, which is basically redoing the classroom according to the ability of the students, and then measure that in a way that not only gives confidence to Pratham as an organization, but also gives confidence to the donor side 
that when these the results of these uh, studies are coming out, donors can have the confidence that now uh, doers like Rukmini are basing this based on hard evidence done by an independent organization rather than their instincts, ideology, or inertia. Thank you. And just a quick follow-up question, Iqbal. Are you seeing more um, appetite uh, among doers and donors for this kind of more rigorous evidence to measure the, the impact of their own work? Absolutely. I think, uh, you know, starting with, you know, about, uh, and I would say it's, it's, been, it's been the trend for almost about 10 years, at least for the last few years, I would say the demand for some of the work that we have been doing is much more than even our ability to do it. And, and, and that's why you see a proliferation of uh, many other organizations in what we call the evidence to policy space. Uh, I think some of the work, for instance, that the Chandler Foundation has done in, in partnership with Co-Impact is a reflection of that evidence-informed policy making. And yes, absolutely, it's a, it's a great trend and we are, we are very confident about it. I think, Tim, one thing I will say is that the application to different sector varies across things. So I think, for instance, in education, in agriculture, um, in, in health, you see much more of it. I think, you know, there are a few areas, for instance, you know, the one that I would say is the most pressing is climate change. Uh, even though, you know, in, in climate change is one area where I sometimes feel that so much of the conversation is based on evidence and on science, and yet people have very have formulated opinions, either, you know, climate change is a hoax or climate change is real. And therefore, sometimes I feel that people feel, you know, both sides feel that we don't need any more evidence. And I think... That's the area where I really hope uh, to answer your question that there can be more demand for evidence uh, so that both sides can kind of challenge themselves and put their money onto things that really work. Thank you. Moving to James, you're a great example of a philanthropist who's having a catalytic effect by in investing in what, what is described as the world's largest unmet disability for vision. Tell us a bit about that work and, and, and whether you see clearly as having a, a systems change impact. If so, how and, and what are the, maybe the keys to that, that success? Thanks, thanks Tim. Uh, so uh, the Clearly campaign is, uh, was launched about, you know, 2016. Uh, and this is the latest part of phase of a 15 year journey that I've been, I've been on to, uh, to really tr understand uh, why the world does not have access to vision correction, and mainly it's the is a people in the developing world, and this has been a very uh, uh, long and tough journey. Uh, but with the clearly campaign, uh, we really believe that it is possible to be able to deliver vision correction to everyone in the world, and uh, and so we needed to 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 communicate that to to try and. Build the coalition, and uh, and so and so far, uh, the, we've had really important, I think, uh, impacts on 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 the system change. First of all, um, it's it's the clearly campaign has been able to unify the messaging within the eye sector to reframe the vision correction issue from the health silo where it where it was resided you know within the minds of uh, of, of policymakers where it has no priority where it has no priority when compared to other health interventions such as uh, diseases acute diseases where people are dying 
or things like malnutrition, right? Uh, poor vision is at the bottom of the of, of the pile of of priorities there. But uh, it's now becoming recognized uh, through the work of the of the campaign uh, that uh, that it is actually uh, uh, a something called a sustainable development goal accelerator. So reframing it from one silo to to link it to productivity, education outcomes, and gender equality, and so forth, really, you know, changes the the dynamic uh, and thinking around the issue by policymakers. Secondly, we've had um, uh, uh, a uh, uh, we, you know, in driving the political advocacy, we've had a break, a couple of really uh, uh, good breakthroughs. First is a. Uh, and a, a acceptance by the Commonwealth Heads of Government Government Leaders meeting in London in 2018, uh, where they, uh, they 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 in their final statement, you know, recognize this is an agenda item to be worked on within Commonwealth countries. And uh, and uh, secondly is uh, is the formation of the of the Friends of Vision group at U at the United Nations, where we've already had success uh, in helping to. Uh, uh, bring the issue of vision correction into the uh, universal healthcare agenda, and this year we're pushing to have this uh, to have a, a a World Sight Day uh, recognized by the UN, as well as a, a resolution on 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 on, uh, on vision correction as a basic human right. That's so great. Thanks, James. Moving to Rukmini, you do you. Think of Potham's work as systems changing work, and if so, what is the system you're changing, and how how are you changing it? Good things about coming last on a panel is that almost anything that needs to be said has been said already, and so uh, I'm going to just move ahead uh, and tell you a little story. I actually don't like the word systems change because um, I think the word systems and I think the word change means many different things to many different people. It's a bit like Hinduism. You know, we have millions of gods and we can worship at that and still be called, uh, you know, a good worshiper. So um, I was in the office of a uh, friend who headed uh, one of the biggest uh, departments in a big state uh, uh, called rural development. Right. And uh, we were talking and he said to me, uh, Rukmini, you're very lucky because you have found your tiger. And I asked him to explain. And this was the time in India when there was this big wild uh, you know, life conservation campaign going on. And you would see on the TV and everywhere how many tigers were still alive. And if the number of tigers went up, then it meant that something right uh, you know, was happening in the whole uh, uh, conservation area. And so his point was that by focusing on whether every child in India can read or do simple arithmetic, I had my tiger. And if my tiger went up, then many things that contribute to it presumably go up. And I like that because it makes, like Iqbal said and like Neera said, I think it makes uh, the problem that you're trying to tackle very visible and tangible. And it's important to have the problem be visible and tackleable by everyone, not just by policymakers or by certain planners. But if I really want every child in India to be reading, every parent has to be aware of where my child is at and what I need to do. And so going to Neera's point about complexity and complications, I think there's a big need uh, to you know, bring out ways in which these things can be communicated 
That is not to say that the process of change can be just a simple, you know, a linear pathway. But get the idea in many, many million people's heads that this is a problem and that we all need to contribute. Okay, so we need to change our tigers. Uh, what do you perceive as the most important reason why donors might be reluctant to support systems change efforts? Yeah, I mean, I even though I'm the one who who am I'm also convinced that it's the attribution potentially that that's a challenge. Um, I, I think there's something underlying the attribution which has a bit to do with control and power and. Uh, wanting to feel directly connected with what you're funding. Um, in addition, that then plagues the, the doer to have to compartmentalize rather than have sort of an, an outcome-led uh, approach. So I also don't agree that there aren't enough investments, let's say, that have a systems change approach. But because the donor is still lagging, that's really where thus has inserted itself. And so we launched our 10 to 19 adolescent collaborative, which focuses on adolescent girls. And what we found is useful is placing outcomes at the center. Well, in the outcomes in our adolescence collaborative, which has taken us seven or eight years to actually get to this point, you know, we have delaying child marriage, uh, delaying first pregnancy, completing secondary school and agency. No one would debate that these are outcomes that will empower an adolescent girl. So we've ended up uh, pooling almost $50 million over the, over the years, of which it enables an individual to participate, it enables an institutional funder to participate, and corporates to participate. You mentioned something, just a quick follow-up question. You mentioned something about um, control, which reminded me of also the, the power dynamic often between do donors and doers, which is I've often observed. I mean, I spent 30 plus years on the on the doer side and was was quite aware of it. Does that get in the way of feedback loops for maybe you, you say that doers are quite advanced and it sounds like you're saying more advanced maybe than donors around uh, doing or accelerating systems change. Does that power dynamic get in the way? And if so, what can be done about uh, addressing it so that donors can get better feedback from doers about how to effectively fund systems change? So I think um, I should be careful in case I, I am quoted that it's a massive generalization, right? To say that all doers are one way and obviously all funders are another. But if I were to break down, let's say the, the donor side, they're extremely sophisticated funders. So I would say Gates is an, a sophisticated funder. Packard, sophisticated funder. Ford Foundation, sophisticated. And so there's institutional money, highly siloed, but very sophisticated. I think they get it. And there's a, an extreme power dynamic there. But that kind of changes when you start to move to, let's say, family. So we work a lot with individual philanthropists and how they give and how they approach their giving. And there's something to be said about the power dynamic of a program officer and someone who represents money and the actual principal. So the actual philanthropist who created money from wealth, these two actually engage in a, in a funny enough opposite power dynamic. So I think that's really where the challenge becomes is that if I'm a program officer at a foundation, I'm like, I've been doing sexual reproductive health forever. I'm an expert. But that power dynamic then plays into the leader of the doer who's saying, you know, give me a chance. Let me try. Frankly, I believe a lot of the leaders who are implementing and executing 
are the real experts in this. And so I think being more clear about where you need accountability on the underside to be able to drive the agendas, right? Because the program officer has a whole lot of bureaucracy sitting on top of them, that what leaders of systems change need to do is just carve out pieces for as long as our funders aren't going to figure out how to do it. Figure out what's going to enable them to go and move a systems change agenda requires us also on the doer leader side of implementation to reimagine what that could compartmentalize and downplay slightly the activism that I'm expressing. Great. Well, thank you. Thank you for venturing into that. And I didn't mean to say that you had generalized earlier by saying that all all, all doers were ahead of Tony. So I just want to I'm moving to you. Well, first, any comments, observations? This is what I, you know, often call the what, where, who, when, and how kind of problem of system level change. I think, you know, it, it is, and to that extent, it is a little bit like climate change. The more you dive deeper into it, you get intimidated by the extent of the problem and what you need to do. And what you need to actually do is to break it down into what I call these five points. The first one is what to do. And I think that comes down to the point about measuring impact. Uh, you know, I want to do something in education. Uh, what are the what are the most cost effective and importantly also cost effective ways to improve learning outcomes? And I think there, you know, so many people have invested money in getting people computers and digital devices and Wi-Fi connections. When essentially, you know, our work, for instance, with Pratham of Jaypal and Pratham is showing that kids are not learning because you know you're not te you're teaching them way beyond their ability. So I think that's the what part, and breaking it down is important. The second part is where do you want to do it? Like what makes a particular country, a particular government, or a particular let's just say, you know, what context makes it more amenable to system level change versus the other? You know, perhaps the place where you want, most want to, for instance, do system level change is South Sudan. But maybe South Sudan is not the place where you can actually deliver on system level change. In fact, you might need to go to a country like India or a country like Zambia to do system level change. And that kind of people often find it very hard to grapple with the fact and say, but I want to go to the poorest of the country. So then that brings to the third question, who do you want to do the system level change with? And I think this is where I actually find that, you know, a, a lot of donors have this resistance to work with governments. But I think if you want system level change, uh, you, even if you want it with a fantastic large NGO, uh, those NGOs have to partner with the governments to create enduring change. And I think that becomes a third level. The fourth is when to do it. I think donors and all of us have to realize that the when is actually not in our hands. So, you know, when you want, when you're ready to invest the money may not be the right time to go in. And I think keeping your uh, gunpowder gun or your, your ammunition ready for those exact policy windows when, you know, there is appetite for system level change is much more important than throwing money at a problem when there is not an appetite. And sorry, but the, it's a, this is a complex question, but then the fifth and the last piece of this is the how piece. How do you do system level change? Uh, there are multiple stakeholders involved, there is money involved, 
uh, and there is the importance of technology and technical advice. I, I won't go into the answers to all of those in detail. If you break it down into those small pieces, then it's doable. Thank you. That's, uh, that was great. And your point about uh, sometimes the reluctance to engage with government uh, really resonates. James, moving to you, um, you have developed a theory of change about the role of philanthropic capital, which relates to this topic. And, and the theory of change, as I understand it, highlights the, the comparative advantage of philanthropic capital in terms of risk. But could you break this down for us in, in terms of explaining the theory of change and and distill what, what are the important lessons for donors here from this theory? First of all, I, what it strikes me is that all the discussion so that everyone's had so far, if you if you pull it all back, it come it boils down to uh, are donors willing to be risk takers? You know, take more risk in your philanthropy, right? They, you know, uh, uh, most uh, uh, high net worth made their money being risk takers in business, but somehow when it comes to their philanthropy, they become extremely risk averse. In the same way that that uh, the the founder of your business enterprise took really high risk to to establish that and and, and build the the financial wealth, right? So you know, with this idea of risk in mind, if you look at this chart, right? You know, this is actually it's 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 uh it's very much if you were in the in the financial uh in the in the profit making arena, right? You would instantly recognize this is this is kind of the life cycle of of any um, uh, idea, right? From idea towards success, you know. At first, you know, uh, on the idea, it's an idea, but you need people to to back you with what we now know is, is and is called venture capital, right? In the in the for profit space, right? Because you're going to be burning cash and and uh, and and prove trying to prove out those ideas, and and uh, and very often they 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 very often they fail in the for profit as well as the non profit. The key is that is the ability to learn from those failures, right, and then re restart again. I don't know um, if if you if anyone has had a chance to watch this new documentary that came out uh, uh, about um, a company called General Magic. That's the name of the documentary, but it, it's it talked about the smartphone. Actually, the idea of the smartphone came out in 1989, and it was way too early, you know. And uh, there was lots of failures, 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 and then finally Apple got it right, and and now you know it's it's like a, a no-brainer, right? But actually, that no-brainer got its start in 1989, right? And that's what, what I'm talking about here. Is, you know, some uh, things will take a, a shorter, some take some longer, but you have to go down that point where it's all about burning and risk-taking, right? Uh, and then at some point, you come up with a model that says, oh, you know. We have the breakthrough, and 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 then you 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 know you start to be able to scale, and it's at that point where you know institutional capital can step up because they are by nature you know because they are representing uh, 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 owners of capital, those agents you know generate more risk averse, and they can then start to uh, uh, scale up by putting their, their capital at work, right? And that's where I'm I feel very strongly that only private capital where we are owners of the capital, we can take those risks and deploy that capital because it's, it, this, this is a journey. This is my, my particular journey, you know, uh, uh, has been 15 years. But along the way, because I'm, you know, have 
been uh, uh, failing, but learning, failing, but learning, success, learning, you know, and fail again, learn, success, you know, that's, you know, I think we're now, you know, have crossed the x-axis. And, and that's why the, the, the clearly campaign, we're able to then advocate and, and start to engage with, with, with governments in this process, right? And perhaps if I may use an analogy, right, is that uh, in, in this, in this uh, concept is that, you know, this is like, you know, seeking risk capital for system change is like being stuck in an ocean looking for fresh water. There's lots of water around you, but not to quench your thirst. And actually drinking the seawater sea will actually harm you. So in our world, doers like sailors in the ocean have to be realistic and clever to harvest fresh water because the chance of rain now is very low. If more private donors embrace taking risk, embarking on journeys of system change and building domain expertise, weather will change, the drought will be lifted with more chances for the doers to survive and thrive with fresh water from the rain. So in other words, the current environment for systems change is dire because of the lack of fresh water, i.e. risk-taking capital, and an overabundance of salt water i.e. risk-averse capital. Private donors can step up to make more risk-taking capital available, thereby system change the system change. The common thread that we have been hearing from the panel is about navigating through complex power dynamics. Who takes control? Who takes bigger risks? As we take a closer look at Pratham, one of the largest NGOs in India to have achieved wide-scale success in the country's educational landscape, what are some best practices to accelerate the work that doers are creating? I think that the main characteristic that uh, we have found to be very useful is partnership. That uh, whoever is providing the financial resources also thinks of them as an equal partner in this whole journey. And going back to what James has been talking about, the only thing that you can really guarantee, especially in a high-risk uh, context, is learning. And so I think that, that if you're willing to go as equal partners, you're willing to go through the ups and downs of the risk. You're willing to go with an open mind. And all of that combined, I think we are going to learn what it takes uh, to you know, move forward. But I think what is more important is that you are tough on each other, but you're together. And that you hold each other kind of intellectually responsible as well as responsible on the ground. Our partnership, for example, with JPAL uh, is something that we decided to do. There was no donor compulsion on us. But I think that that partnership also led others to see that these guys are willing to take a very hard look and an honest look at what they're doing and, and, and are fine uh, to even talk about failure. So I think that this deep commitment to learning and a deep commitment to say that we don't know everything, we have to figure it out. And then if we figure it out in one location, doesn't automatically mean it will work elsewhere. But I think yeah. that the value of equal partnership is very, very high. And along with that, you can't have that partnership unless you both want to learn. 
Thank you. I wanted to give each of the panelists about 90 seconds. If you offer one piece of advice to doers who support systems change on how best to approach donors or, or attract the needed funding support, what would it be? Well, I think that uh, uh, what I would, I, what I'd say again is, is, is to really assess what is the risk-taking appetite of that donor or, you know, the, 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 the people you're approaching, right? And uh, too often today, I think, you know, people really don't, don't think of it. Uh, uh, they always think of a dollar, oh, a dollar from the government, you know, a government institution is the same as a dollar from private capital. And that's my main point here is that actually yeah. private capital yeah. is actually much more, much more uh, 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 flexible, right? Because they, again, they are agents to the real capital. Yeah, great, great point. Nira, same question. 60 seconds. I think doers need to take funders on donors on a learning journey and think about a long-term horizon, think about holding their hands, exposing them to the work you're doing, exposing them to the challenges, um, and begin to create a space where they trust you and you trust them. And from that will come this ability to course correct and to adapt. So I think to change our mindset and that we're both on a learning journey to ultimately really change lives and have an impact. Uh, I think intent is all there. And so really holding hands and moving together um, virtually or in reality will help. And thank you, Nira. Uh, and now for Rukmini and Iqbal, the, the question for you is, if a donor comes to you and says, how can I, as a donor, better be a better funder of, of systems change impact? What are one or two things you would say to them? Again, just in 60 seconds. Sorry, we're running out of time. Rukmini, can you go first, please? I would say uh, there are systems at many levels. Um, uh, the, there is a local level. There is an intermediary level. There could be a national level. And so between the donor and the doer, you've got to figure out what's your best comparative advantage uh, on the ground, in the air. The second, I think, is things that bring two parties together is how do you view the logic of how you think this thing is going to change? You know, call it theory of change, call it whatever you will. And I think really going through with each other, looking at, you don't have to agree, but you have to respect that this is the path I'm going to try and you have to like thrillers if you're in this business, because it is a thrilling journey with ups and downs. And Ipa, same question. That it's less about the amount of money and it is more about how you spend that money. And I think being, you know, trusting, uh, you know, building long-term partnerships and then being nimble and flexible with those partners on how they spend the money to affect system level change is extremely important because that those five points that I raised just tells you how complex system level change is. And so allowing the doers to be flexible and to have the available resources to pivot as and when the change happens, because change is not going to, system level change does not happen in a linear fashion is the most important thing. Thank you for listening to this episode on funding systems change in Asia. This discussion was adapted from the AVPN Virtual Conference 2020 which brought together more than 7,500 people in the midst of the COVID-19 crisis 
to discuss the mounting issues facing Asia and how our community of social investors have a critical role to play to catalyze solutions. To watch the full recording of the panel discussion, visit avpn.asia slash webinar. If you would like to connect more deeply with AVPN's social investment community, you can reach out to us at knowledge at avpn.asia to explore opportunities. We would like to thank our lead partners, Chandler Foundation, Stockholm Environment Institute, and Edan Prize Foundation for their continuous support. See you at our next episode, where we take a deep dive into the complex field of climate action and how we can uncover hidden pockets of finance to scale impact.